part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. We're back. Sorry about that, y'all. No worries. All right, folks, welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, Phone line is open, 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857. You have Joe and Mel in the Facebook chat. Appreciate that. Tara says uh, that there's a Turning Point USA in Madison City Schools. Uh, Terrible. Terrible. Not good. Uh, Mel, referring to the UAW campaign at Mercedes, said, I got to meet some of these fine folks at the West Alabama Labor Council. That's awesome, Mel. If uh, you have anything else, uh, if you, you want to talk some more about that, feel free to call in. Uh, Joe says, uh, UAW Delphi workers in Alabama, a parts supplier, made more money and benefits 15 years ago than any of these auto manufacturers now. Absolutely. They no. sure did. Yeah. My father-in-law retired from Delphi. No doubt about it. Um, had some more folks jump in the YouTube chat. DL Cindero uh, says, peace comrades and fellow workers. Uh, Reese says, good morning. Uh, Maxwell says, you guys should consider reaching out to Corey Walton, who hosts the From A to Arbitration, to talk about the uh, letter carriers contract. We may very well do that. Adam says that's a good recommendation. Corky Geek Girl says, good morning from a snowy Toronto. We're supposed to get snow in Alabama on Tuesday. Uh, we'll see. What or Monday, happens. maybe. Um, not maybe sure. Maybe Monday or Tuesday. It's supposed to get down to zero degrees Tuesday night. I think we're going to have to postpone that Labor Council meeting, unfortunately. I'll talk to, we'll have to talk to the executive committee about that. Eric says, um, the new Alabama football coach has a contract. Now the Tuscaloosa Mercedes workers need a contract too. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for them. Tuscaloosa support the workers the same. There you go. That's, uh, totally that's agree. a great point. Uh, Adam says, good radio today. Love the song. Who's singing it? Florence Reese, the, uh, Wife of a coal miner uh, sung and wrote the song, and that is a recording of her singing that song at a UMWA convention in like the 70s or something. Uh, Reese mentions that we are finally unsh- uh, unchained from the shackles of the FCC as we are online only. That's exactly right. Um, so, yeah, there we go. Uh, let's go ahead and we're going to wrap up this um, segment about the UAW. Uh, wanted to go ahead and knock that out um so left off talking about um how the choice is not believe it or not the choice is not do you want continued opportunity and success the alabama way or do you want out-of-state special interest telling alabama how to do business because actually the latter the latter of those two is what's happening right now That is exactly what's happening right now with out-of-state special interests, these international, global auto manufacturing companies 
are telling Alabamians dictatorially by diktat with total oligarchic control, zero recourse on the part of the workers, when and where and how and uh, for how much and how often they will be able to work. Alabama workers have no say over that. So currently, out-of-state special interests are telling Alabama how to do business. The question is, do you want the status quo, which is out-of-state special interest telling Alabama how to do business, or do you want Alabamians to have a seat at the table and have some control over the majority of their waking lives? That's the question when you're asking whether or not Alabamians should unionize. Do you want them to have some control over the conditions of their life? Right. Do you want the status quo of falling wages? Is that is that what we're defending here, Governor Ivey? And why do you want workers to not have a voice? Right. Why do you think Alabama workers do not deserve collective bargaining rights? Why do you think <clears throat> Alabama workers do not deserve to have due process on the job? Yep. to have representation on the job, someone to have their back if they need it. Why do you think that? Why do you think Alabama workers are less than? Because that's what you're telling us. You're telling us that Alabama workers don't deserve a voice. Yeah. Uh, so she wasn't the only one to come out um, against workers unionizing at Mercedes. Um Huntsville State Senator Sam Gavan uh, was not as explicit as Kay Ivey. Um, you know, he's uh, in just about everything. He's kind of milquetoast and wishy-washy about what he says. Um, but he was on the Dale Jackson show talking about this. And um, so I, I pulled a little bit of it because I thought it was instructive and gives us a good jumping off point for, for some other, um, uh, you know, key points to this conversation. So let's play this clip. I, I just think that the... The typical worker is much more conservative than the union bosses, and I just don't know that there's a lot of jobs out there that are paying well. What do they really get out of it? And okay, yeah. uh, let's pause there, and we'll come back know. to that. Um, so there are two things there that the the average worker is more conservative than the union bosses. Um, the you, I mean, it's it's amazing how every one of these people use this term to try to, you know, undermine the legitimacy of the union leadership. Uh, yeah, you don't like unions because they have bosses. <laughs> right, right. But we love but we employers, love <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. the actual it's just, bosses. It's just a bizarre, it, it's just really bizarre. Um, but, you know, you don't elect your bosses at work, although, you know, I think I think there's a, a good argument to say that you should. <laughs> you should be able to do that. You should be able to elect your bosses at work. Um, but you don't get that right now. You are subject totally to their control with no recourse unless you have a union. Um, but then the second thing that he said is, what do they get out of it? Well, they get a lot out of it, actually. There's a lot that they can get out of it. Uh, in the report from Alabama Arise, one of the other things that they mentioned was safety. And so listen to this. This is crazy. In 2010 alone, Workers in Alabama parts plants had a 50% higher rate of illness and injury than the U.S. auto parts industry as a whole. 
By 2015, the chances of losing a finger or limb in an Alabama parts factory was double the amputation risk nationally for the industry, 65% higher than in Michigan and 33% higher than in Ohio. And in 2017, the incidence of traumatic injuries in Alabama's auto plants remained 9% higher than in Michigan's and 8% higher than in Ohio's. So that's that just, Alabama homegrown right. way. So just immediately when you're talking just on safety, what do you get out of unionization? Well, between a 10 and 60 percent lower chance of having your limbs severed from your body. OK, that's a significant thing, I think. I think that's significant. OK, I do. Yeah, I, I prefer having <laughs> all of my limbs, all of uh, my limbs, all of my fingers. That's my preference. And if you unionize, you have more likelihood of keeping them. Here's another one. Consistency. Damn, out of state interest. Right. Want you to keep all your fingers. Right. right. Consistency. One of the things that Alabama Arises report highlighted with Alabama's non-union manufacturing sector, auto manufacturing sector, is that significant changes detrimental to employees recently have taken place at multiple Alabama auto manufacturing facilities. For example, workers at Mercedes reported having Saturday and Sunday pay rates previously paid at double on Saturdays or triple on Sundays the regular hourly rate. Those were changed recently to their straight hourly rate. No more premium time on the weekends. And that was changed without negotiation or any input from the workers. The out-of-state special interests that are the car companies just decided that, and Alabama workers had to live with it. Further, worker interviews noted that some facilities have instituted complete overtime bans within the past year, sometimes with less than a pay period's notice to workers who had experienced declines in earnings because of the policy changes. Worker estimates of the financial impact of these changes state that they could cost up to $1,500 a pay period. And so look, this is... This I don't is, know many people who can afford a $1,500 hit in a pay period unexpectedly. Right. It, that that's real rough. That's huge. That's rough. And you know the thing is that I mean there's there's a bit of a complication here in that I don't think anybody should have to work overtime. But if you as an employer have conditioned your employees to expect overtime and to be able to live on a consistent diet of overtime and those overtime wages and premiums. And then to take it away without negotiation or input or even a pay period's notice, that is insane. And that doesn't happen in a unionized facility because they have to negotiate over it. Consistency is a huge, uh, a huge benefit to working in a unionized plant. Okay, so those are just two things right there. And then obviously, you know, we can talk, and those aren't even the things that people think about the most, right? When people think about unions and the benefits, they think wages and benefits, okay? So we even set aside the most obvious things and said safety and consistency. These are huge issues in people's lives that are enormously better, that are made enormously better and immediately so on unionization. But then, you obviously, you've got wages, benefits, respect, stuff like this, right? Uh, that you get out of unionization. 
I mean, when you have a problem, silly, what what do they get out of it? What is what? Is, I mean, you know, what a he, silly thing. Sam Gavane is literally a lawyer. All right. Right. People hire lawyers, right, to defend them. Okay. Um, if we were to say that there could not be lawyers in the state of Alabama, because you know that's not the Alabama way, he would feel some type of way about it. And you know, it's not to equate union representation with we, you know, lawyers, uh, because sometimes we do that in our movement. I don't always think that's helpful. But at the end of the day, um, if you have a problem at work, you would like to have someone you could go to. Right. You would like to have somebody's going to have your back. Somebody is going to be there. You, if there is a problem, if you witness a safety concern, can you report that? Do you feel comfortable reporting that? And do you feel comfortable that someone will take action on that? If you are being mistreated at work, do you have a recourse? If you walk in one day after years of good service, good evaluations, and they walk you out the door for no reason, is that okay? Right. Right? I mean, so, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's a lot, obviously, that they get out of it. Um and this broken status quo is what Alabama politicians are trying to defend. That's yeah. what they want to defend, where poverty is widespread and where you're, you should be grateful to get a job like Hyundai or Mercedes, even though they're paying you less than they used to, even though things keep getting worse and no one asks you about it and you don't have any choice in it. That right. you should just be grateful for that because, hey, I guess it could be worse. You could be working at McDonald's or KFC right. alongside prison labor. Oh, wait. Right. Actually, hmm, if you're in the auto supply chain, you're probably already working alongside convict lease labor, if not children, if not both, in the case of Hyundai. Right. But, you know, that's the Alabama homegrown way that we're supposed to defend. Yeah, Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, he says, so let's, let's, uh, play the rest of that clip. I, I just think that the, the typical worker is much more conservative than the union bosses. And I just don't know that there's a lot of jobs out there that are paying well, what do they really get out of it? And, um, you know, <clears throat> the reason we've had growth that we've had in, in Huntsville is because we're right to work state. We wouldn't have gotten um, we wouldn't have gotten any of these car plants if we weren't a, in the state of Alabama if we weren't a right to work state. And you know we'll just see how the workers uh, vote, but that that area over there is still a pretty conservative area. And I just would be surprised if I know that, I know they're not all from Vance. I mean they're gonna they're sure. gonna come from different areas, but it's still a pretty conservative area of the state. So there we go. Um, the growth happened because of right to work and because of implicitly the low unionization rate. And, uh, you know, I don't want to, I, I'm, I'm a union partisan. I'm a partisan for the workers, but the way best to do that is to work in reality. I think, I think the best way that you can be a real an effective partisan for working class people is to live in reality. And there is a reality to the fact that Alabama has gotten these investments because of our low road approach. 
These companies came to Alabama because the leaders of Alabama said the workers of our state are more easily exploitable than the workers in Michigan. And we will facilitate that exploitation. Okay, so there is a truth to that. But just because there is a, a truth to that does not mean that is the truth. That is not the only truth. Uh, the United Auto Workers, in fact, in this last round of negotiations, showed the way that the low-road approach is not the only way to get new investments from companies. In the lead-up to the UAW's negotiations, the Stellant Stellantis closed the Belvedere plant in Illinois, eliminated thousands of jobs. This was in the lead-up to the negotiations, and during the negotiations, the UAW was able to get them to reopen this plant. That is the first time in the history of American automotive manufacturing, as far as I'm aware, that a permanently, an indefinitely idled plant has been reopened by the same company. Sometimes companies will come in and take over previously held man, you know, manufacturing plants. But this is the first time, as far as I'm aware, that it's been reopened by the same company. That was because of worker power. And not only was the UAW able to get Stellantis to reopen the Belvedere plant, they were also able to get Stellantis to commit to the uh, opening of a battery plant on the same campus in Belvedere. So, uh, offering up our citizens as a sacrifice to the market is not the only way to get investment. We can also pry investment from the hands of the capitalists. We can force them to invest by our power. Because we can say, if you don't invest, then you don't get anything. Right? You can strike. That's what UAW workers at the big three American automotive uh, manufacturers said. They said, if you don't reopen the Belvedere plant, Stellantis, then you will face an increasing strike. And so Stellantis was forced to do that. And so, uh, and that just shows, you know, another angle to the fact that what is happening right now is out-of-state special interests are telling Alabama how to do it, how to do business. And unionization with the proper, you know, with the proper organization and worker power and input and democracy can actually change that and can make it so that Alabama, not the politicians, not the business leaders, but Alabama's workers, the people who KIV admits are responsible for the humming of our economic engine can have a real say in what happens in the state and in these companies that have taken root in our state. So that's the answer to that. That's the answer to that. Is there some, you know, have we gotten this growth largely because of the low road approach, uh, lack of unionization, uh, workers being offered as sacrifices by our political leaders? Yes, that is in large part why we have gotten this investment. But that is not the only way to attract investment. And in fact, I would argue that the other way that I've just laid out of getting investment is better for working people <laughs> and for the state's economy. So. There we go. 
UAW workers at Mercedes should unionize. That's my hot take. Um, so we've still got a lot of stuff to get to. 844-899-8857 is the phone number if you want to call in, if you have anything to add. Um, let's talk about this. Um, let's talk about this Indiana Republican. <laughs> this is crazy. We talked about in, you know, last year in Southern Labor, the review about how, you know, um, Child labor has been a big story, both in it happening and in, um, you know, Republicans seeing it happening and saying, oh, wow, that's that's based. Let's have more of that. Uh, and well, there's another instance of that happening last week in Indiana, where uh, State Representative Joanna King, Republican from the 49th District, co-authored or she authored it with two co-authors, uh, Matt Lehman from the 79th District and David Abbott uh, from the 18th District, all three Republicans. They filed a new bill that would allow 14-year-old children to drop out of school after 8th grade and work 40 hours a week on the farm. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's almost difficult to know what else to say to that other than, you know, that's wicked and, and you know, perverse and... Uh, all of this kind of stuff, but uh, just so that you don't think that I'm being hyperbolic, I I, um, I saw this from More Perfect Union, and they linked to the bill's text, and so I pulled it, and so this is the bill's text. Okay, so um, first it 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 defines quote exempted minor because later on they're going to say an exempted minor has the authority to do this. Okay, so what is an exempted minor? An exempted minor refers to a minor who has, one, been excused from compulsory school attendance after completing grade eight, and two, whose parent submits to the minor's current or prospective employer, A, a signed statement from the parent declaring that the minor has been excused from school after completing grade eight, and B, proof supporting the statement made under Clause A. Okay, so there we go. That's who this person is. That's that's who an exempted minor is. An exempted minor is somebody who's been excused from education by their parents, um, and whose parents have uh have have you know proved that. So here is uh the new thing: an exempted minor who is at least fourteen years of age and less than eighteen years of age may work at farm labor during school hours on a school day. Subject to subsection B, an exempted minor who is at least 14 years of age and less than 16 years of age may work during school hours on a school day. This subsection does not apply to an exempted minor who works at farm labor as described in section 14.5 of this chapter. An exempted minor described in subsection A may not work as follows before 7 a.m. or after 7 p.m., blah, 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 blah. But it goes on to say that, yeah, you can work uh, eight hours on a school day, 40 hours in a school week, eight hours on a non-school day and 40 hours in a non-school week <laughs> if you have been exempted from school after eighth grade by your parents on the farm, like specifically on the farm <laughs> for some reason. Um, I mean, just really crazy stuff. Imagine thinking, thinking that, uh, you know, what we need more of in the United States of America is... Um, 14-year-olds with only an 8th grade education uh, going into industry and working. You know, 
they do say make America great again. And right. um, so there is a call to the past. There. There's a call to uh, the past. And, you know, they like to talk about the good old days. And, right. and in the good, good old days, uh, folks worked on the farm. I am only like a generation removed from the farm myself. Mm. Uh, both of my parents grew up on farms, um, did lots of, you know, farm labor, of course, around in the family. Um, but the idea that, like, <clears throat> we want to return to this being a common practice, right? Like, you know, the county school systems right. in Alabama used to set their calendar around harvest. And mm-hmm. um, it used to be very uh, common that folks would come and go, you know, uh, to school, not consistently because of farm labor, right? They had, right. well, it's time for the harvest. So I'm not going to see little Johnny for a while. Um, yeah, it's just, it's depressing, I guess. Um it's a reminder that history really is important because you see where so many of these issues that we battled in the Gilded Age are back, mm. and we are in a Gilded Age. We are very right. much in a, a – like that is the situation we fa- find ourselves with, with a, an oligarchy uh, that is determined to make conditions worse, and um, – you have employers who are trying to squeeze as much as they possibly can out of working people who've seen their living standards deteriorate for the last 50 years. Um, and, and, you know, this this battle over child labor is an area where our labor movement better be involved and better be right. vocal um, because it, it's too important to move backwards on this. This is one of our proudest accomplishments as a movement was getting children off the farms, out of the mills, out of the mines, right, and into schools. That is our legacy as a union movement. Um, and so we have to be at the forefront. We have to be building coalitions with the community, including in the immigrant community, right, because so many of these children that are being exploited are migrant children. And so, again, our labor movement has a responsibility there to build coalitions and to work with those communities. And there there are some issues of tension and, and trust there that have to be overcome, but it's worth it uh, because we can't see this. We can't see a return of children into the workforce. Um, it's just it's it's not acceptable in the year 2024. This joker wants to do this. Right. It's uh yeah, it's wild. I don't understand how, you know, and then there are some people who still go on believing that oh yeah, you know, Republicans family values. That's the that's kind of their thing. Family values. They love families. Well, and you know, there are some people who would say that this is perfectly acceptable for family values that it is good for these kids. Um and that, you know, what well, these these are probably the kids who aren't going to college anyway, right? Right. So, at least they're doing something productive, right? And and I I've just really find that offensive. Every kid deserves an opportunity to be a kid and to learn as much as they possibly can so they can go on to to be the kind of adult that they can be uh, to the fullest of their potential. And, you know, to exploit children. It also reminds me that we as a labor movement have to be really engaged with young people uh, and have to be in communication and dialogue and building relationships with young people because you go ask a lot of 14-year-olds, and they might actually be down for it. Mm. Um, 
because a lot of them are disgruntled with school, right? right. School feels very <laughs> much uh, industrial and oppressive to a lot of children. Uh, and so there are, I, I can tell you right now, my wife's students, a lot of them would say, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd rather go to work than come to school right? Uh, as <clears throat> teenagers. And uh, so we have work to do there on the value of education and the value of actually like, you know, not entering the workforce as a child. Right. Uh, but we have uh, a responsibility, I think, to educate and, and organize young people so that they know their rights. Uh, because, you know, we do still have some protections for them. Not enough, but uh, we need to ensure that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, do you want to do the boss watch in review or do you want to save that for next week? We could save that for next week. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, fine with that. All right. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, and then we'll we'll talk about um, let's talk about college football players uh, unionizing. And I've got this clip from Jim Harbaugh, uh, Michigan, um, uh, Michigan football coach. Um my understanding is that I, I don't. So I'm not a big, you know, college football fan. I say uh, right. You're, you're definitely fan. not. I, I say I say roll tide uh, in like an ironic way, um, but but I'm not. Uh, but my understanding is that this this was kind of a, a surprise coming from Jim Harbaugh. Do you, you know, are you in Harbaugh world? Well, um, I don't know if I would say surprise. I just I hadn't heard him say anything to this effect. So I guess it is a little bit of a surprise, especially that it would happen like the national championship press conference. Mm. Right. That's a very big yeah, platform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to wonder what the quest, what the conversations were with the administrators after that. <laughs> right. I mean, that's literally like the biggest platform he will ever have, probably. Right. Um, and so I really applaud that. And I as a football guy, I'm not a fan of Harbaugh necessarily. Like, you know, I, I find his personality kind of annoying. Um you know, there are a lot of allegations about sign stealing and, mm. you know, these you know little <clears throat> controversies around the conduct of his program. Um, you know, I, I'm not one of these people who's going to be like, oh, he's a cheater, blah, blah. You know, I, I, I don't first of all, I don't know enough about the details to go that far. But second, I just don't care. Frankly, I'm a Southern Miss fan. Uh, mm. And, um, you know, we're a small school in the Sunbelt Conference. And so. Uh, like you, even though I'm in Alabama, a lot of folks assume I'm I'm a big Alabama fan. My in-laws are, so I follow them by association. Uh, but all that to say, Jim Harbaugh, you know, is a polarizing figure in college football. Um, a lot of people do not like him. Um, but it's interesting, like I said, the fact that here he is on the, like, the peak of accomplishment. Um uh, and I don't think a lot of people would have expected, you know, him and Michigan to win a national championship a couple of years ago. Um, it just, you know, what was at one point he was uh, in danger of losing his job not too long ago. Um, like, I remember that there was a lot of talks about whether or not he was going to be brought back. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing that such a prominent coach would take a stand for the players. Right. Yeah, well, so let let's play this uh, clip, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about it. The thing I would change about college football is to let the talent share in the ever increasing revenues. Um, I mean, it's we're all robbing the same train, and 
the ones that are you know, in the position to you know, do the heavy lifting, the ones that uh, you know, risk life and limb out there on a football field are, are the players. And, um, and not, just, not just football players, student athletes. Um, the organizations are fighting hard to keep all the money, the universities, the NCAA, the, um, the, the conferences, and it's, it's long past time to let the student athletes share in the ever-increasing revenues. I mean, it's billions. I mean, I, I keep reading, reading facts and, uh, about how much money's being made. I mean, product placement, yeah, I can't have a, a can of a different kind of soda up here. I gotta put it into a, uh, a cup here. Uh, I mean, everybody, everybody is, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're maximizing every single revenue source there is, and, um, but they're not sharing it with the, with the talent. I mean, and, and there's, no, there's no business that that would, would ever fly. I mean, the Supreme Court has said the same thing. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a big one. Yeah, would, uh, I would change that one. And there needs to be a voice for the, for the, uh, the young people, the student athletes. You know, right now, there is no voice. I mean, there are armies of attorneys, uh, and I've seen them, you know, at the NCA, seen them at the universities, um, the conferences, and then, you know, if they don't have enough, if they don't have enough firepower legally, I mean, they go out higher. Uh, you know, the tall building uh, law firms, and they get more firepower. It's just, um, but there's no, there's no voice for the student athletes right now. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, he, he doesn't come out and say unionize now, but, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear the illusions that he was making, uh, you know, workers having a voice, uh, the players having a voice on the job and, and alluding to, you know, the Supreme Court case where uh, they declared, uh, you know, the NCAA was a cartel. And, um, you know, right now the NLRB is in federal court with the NCAA over whether or not um, players are, uh, employees. And so right. this is a, this is a very big deal. And he's exactly right at that. You know, the people who are making this money possible are the ones who are benefiting least from it. And that's just an insane thing to, uh, that, that's an insane state of affairs. Um, the New York times. Wrote, and, and I do want to just pause right there yeah, to yeah. say there are some players who are making extreme amounts of money right now mm. because it is like the Wild West and and so loosely regulated through the NIL, the right, name, right, image, right. likeness deals. There are backups like uh, Arch Manning is a backup quarterback, but because of his name and his family and his, you know, uh, and his future potential, he is making more money. Than a lot of the coaches and then and a lot of wow. uh you know star players in, in other schools and so uh it's very inequitable right very inequitable yeah so so the New York Times had a piece out um towards the end of December about this case uh in federal court that the NLRB has has taken NCAA to court for uh, at what point should college athletes be considered employees and. Um, they talked about a lot of the testimony or a lot of the the um, the arguments being put forward by the NLRB. 
Um, a lot of it is about how much time college football takes up in the lives of college football players and how restrictive it is. And so I wanted to read y'all some of this because it, it is wild. And, and it's, you know, the extent to which this is true, even on down the line of, of like less and less, you know, valuable quote unquote players is pretty wild. <clears throat> Over the opening days, Amanda Lawfer, uh, the lead attorney for the general counsel, sought to demonstrate through the testimony of two recent former walk-on football players. Walk-on football players, right? I mean, that's not, you know, we're not talking about, you know, people that Nick Saban is going to his parents' home and trying to get to come on the team. These are people who was like, yeah, you know, I'm at Alabama, why not play football, right? These are the types of people that we're talking about. Uh, so they sought to demonstrate... Um, uh, uh, that USC, University of Southern California, exerted extraordinary control over the athletes, even ones who were not rewarded with scholarships or earning hundreds of thousands of dollars in endorsements, like Caleb Williams, the team's Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. <clears throat> so here's uh, one testimony from Outlaw. In addition to fingerprint monitoring of their dining hall attendants, the class monitors, which is a, it's like a, a thing that the college football programs have that um, the players, that they check in on the players to make sure they're attending classes. And so like the players actually have to, according to this testimony, uh, send pictures to the uh, class monitors to prove that they are in classes that they're supposed to be in. <clears throat> the near daily hydration and weight checks Players were also required to remain in the team hotel when they were on the road unless they left with the team, even if the game was many hours away. Lawfer asked Outlaw, the football player, if he could meet a friend for coffee. No, Outlaw said. Could he visit the Space Needle while the team was in Seattle? No, Outlaw said. Both players described a point system under the current head coach, Lincoln Riley, and his predecessor, Clay Helton, in which being late or missing meetings, meals, weightlifting sessions, or classes would add up to punishment from the team. Outlaw testified that on Monday mornings, Riley would stand up in front of the team and read a list of the previous week's transgressions. For each one, every player would have to do one up-down, an exercise where players drop down to do a push-up uh, push position, then back up. Outlaw, who ran track at the University of Virginia for four years before he transferred to USC and joined the football team, said that while some workouts are considered voluntary, the NCAA has hours restrictions on team activities, players are expected to participate. Quote, they'd say things like, no, this isn't mandatory. You don't have to do it, Outlaw said with a smile. But it's also not mandatory for us to play you in the fall. This contrasted with the picture that Abrams had illustrated of football as an extracurricular activity that is part of the institutional fabric of the school. Athletes, quote, don't come to USC with the intention of punching a clock, he added. Abrams sought to make the point in his cross-examination that employees, that players had gained skills like discipline and leadership from playing football that would benefit them long after college. Abrams, Nash and, Rock, uh, Nash and Rick Pins, the lead counsel for the NCAA, tried to draw a connection in their questioning of outlaw and hauling quest between the demands of college football and those of high school football, where the players also had coaches' schedules and rules to follow. But Lawfer noted that those are also characteristics of professional football. 
So there we go. And uh, earlier in the article, Outlaw said that his estimate of the total hours just of football was 60 a week, 60 hours a week. I mean, really, really, uh, you know, I mean, that's a lot to not get paid for a walk on. Right. We're not talking about Heisman winners here who are who are now getting NIL stuff, but who previously they weren't even getting anything. We're not talking about Heisman winners. We're talking about walk-on players. 60 hours a week. Mandatory participation in voluntary assignments. I mean, yeah. Uh, Super restrictive, and they're not getting paid for it. And that's uh, terrible. So here's hoping that the uh, NLRB is successful in their case against the NCAA and uh, that college athletes are declared employees and given collective bargaining rights because it's very important. Yeah, and I, I just want to encourage. I think, I think collective organization is the best way that the players are going to get an equitable deal out yeah. of this, right? Like, Absolutely. if they just think of this individually, some of them will win, but a lot of them won't. Right. Um, a lot of them aren't going to make it to the pros. A lot of them aren't going to get these big NIL deals while they're in college. Um, you know, a lot of them lose scholarships, um, <laughs> and, and so. By coming together collectively, they can work out a deal, much like the professional athletes, right? NFL, the NBA, the NHL, all of these athletes that are professionals um, who are doing similar work, they have union contracts and, mm-hmm. and they have union protections. Right. And you can argue about, you know, how good is the union and, and you know, where they may fall short and things like that. But there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that. The players coming together, organizing a union, and getting collective bargaining agreements is the best way forward to ensure the most players benefit as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and so really do encourage that. Uh, shout out to Jim Harbaugh for his comments. I have a lot of respect for him saying that, yeah. uh, uh, particularly on that big platform. Um, I did also want to mention that a uh, friend of the show, Maximilian Alvarez, he put out a uh, new art of class war with breaking points this week um, or no last week, last week. Hmm. He put out one last week where um, he actually talked about this, uh, this very issue and interviewed Jason Stahl, who's the hmm. executive director of the College Football Players Association. Uh, so I haven't had a chance to check that out yet, but um, really, really want to check that out and, and wanted to highlight that as well, because um yeah, I'm curious to hear from the player, but I'm also curious to hear from this players association and kind of learn more about mm-hmm. what their role is in all this and like what they have in mind and you know, right. are they a legit labor union, you know, what what It's what, not my understanding. My understanding is they're like a nonprofit advocacy group. Right. Advocacy group. Right. Maybe so, they turn into a union. Yeah, so that's going to be interesting. So anyway, I wanted to throw that out there as well while we're on the topic. Um, and we do have a couple callers on the line. Yeah, let's bring uh, 256 on, on the line. I believe I know who this is. Um, 256, area code. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? This is Joe Indicator Jacob. Morning, Joe. Adam. Long time no hear from. It's good Good to good morning. Uh, have you good calling. Morning. I don't like calling and boring you to death on a regular basis, but I will call from time to time when I get a little riled up. Uh, uh, I could comment on Miss Abby, but what can I say? Uh, that's just that's just 
Plum Pitiful. I seen that a couple mm. of days ago. I think I commented on Labor 411's uh, Facebook page, and it almost it almost mirrored exactly what you said, Jacob, about Miss Ivy. But that ain't what I wanted to call about, and I this is still a little bit on the political side, and I don't want to get it very political, but uh, this day and age, you can go anywhere you want to, and within two minutes, if you want to strike up a conversation about politics, there's somebody always wanting to weigh in on it. Mm. I, uh, I wanted to comment on the special uh, election that was recently held for an Alabama state Senate opening, yep. where where uh, the former state senator resigned his job to go to work for the Business Council of Alabama, mm-hmm. the most anti-labor group that I know of in the state. Yep. Uh, and thank goodness he's out of the state senate, but it tells you where his, uh, where his priorities was while he was uh, in the state senate. Exactly. But I just wanted to congratulate Mr. Wes Kitchens, for his tremendous victory over there. Uh, his district makes up Marshall County, part of Blunt, and part of Madison County. He is the registered voters in that district is 104,790 registered voters. Now, bear in mind that there wasn't a, a Democrat uh, or Democrats running in a primary. We can't even manage to muster up somebody to run in a, in a primary election anymore. But uh, if you break his numbers down, Mr. Kitchens won that election 52%, mm. 3,700 votes. Second place was a Mr. Coven, 38% with 2,700 votes. And Stacy George, who makes a career out of running for political offices from Morgan County uh, County Commission to uh, Governor of the State of Alabama, he got nine percent or six hundred and forty six votes. Now I think I think Stacy probably pulled a Lauren Bobert somewhere in the last couple of years and run over there to Marshall County where he might get elected at something over there. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I, the, the statement I really wanted to make, and, and bear in mind, I know the turnout would have been better if this was a general election, uh, a Democrat versus a Republican. That brought voters out more on both sides. But if you got a hundred and four thousand plus registered voters, right. and only six point seven percent turn out for an election and you only win 52 percent or 3700 votes it's kind of it's kind of sad that 3700 voters out of that total actually put a state senator in to finish out a term and probably probably will be in line to hold that office forever more unless Unless he does the business cancel bidding and they uh, uh, hire him too, mm-hmm. that's that's the only comment I really wanted to make. Uh, just just how pathetic it is that 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 few people can can uh, put a state senator in uh, that's going to legislate 
and and make laws and rules for the rest of us. I just wanted to comment really quick. His he was the only one where I even seen any political ads on the local TV. Same. And uh, I just want to thank him for for cutting my taxes. He said he cut my taxes somewhere, and I I, I hadn't really noticed that, but maybe I need to look a little harder. Uh, <laughs> if he's talking about my $1 on 100 grocery tax, I think it got eat up on a, on a, on a gas tax that they implemented, mm-hmm. too. So I, I, I think I come out in the negative, but I don't drive near as much, so maybe I didn't. I might have got a nickel out of that. But I also wanted to commend him for fighting Joe Biden's woke agenda. Yeah, I saw I mean, that. He, important. <laughs> very, very important, but the, but the real key to it was he's stopping the woke agenda in the classroom, in the churches, and even in my home. Now, that come off of his, uh, off his political ad. I don't. I don't need him. I don't need him to uh, to tell me I can't be woke or asleep while I'm at home. Uh, surely he's got better things to do than legislate that. Listen, I appreciate y'all taking my call, and I want to say one more thing. I was the self-proclaimed for many years the hardest-working union man in the state of Alabama. I have to pass the torch to Jacob and Adam. I I, I no longer am the self-proclaimed hardest working man in union business in Alabama. I'm I'm passing the torch to Jacob and Adam, and I sure appreciate what y'all do. Hey, I appreciate it. And I'll get off. Thanks, brother. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm glad he mentioned the uh, the West the, Kitchens. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and you know the the thing that that folks outside of Alabama may not know the the controversy there that that happened between Wes and the other people that were running for office was that <laughs> um, even though West Kitchens was um, I mean apparently very effectively fighting the woke agenda in the classroom. <laughs> Um, the teachers union endorsed him in Alabama, uh, sent out mailers on his behalf, like independent expenditure by, Oh, he got the a vote mailer. He then. got the a vote mailer, uh, without a union bug. I don't know how common well, that of is, course, but um, there was remember, no union AEA bug. is very clear that they're not a yeah. union. They're a professional <clears throat> yeah. organization. So, so despite the yeah. label, so he got that, he, he got those mailers without a union label on them and, uh, somehow it got back to conservative media and there was like people like just having a fit about it on the radio. I can't believe we got a Republican that's going to win this election. It's got teachers union endorsement. This is insane. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I mean, newsflash Republicans, uh, AEA gives more money to y'all than to the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, And their strategy is to endorse Whoever is going to win, that's going to win. Yep, they do pay to play. That's the strategy: pay yeah. to play. Uh, they pay, and yeah. um, you know, to be determined how well it's working. But um, you know, so I yeah, I'm glad Joe brought up that election. The super small turnout. What was it? Six, six, yeah, seven six, percent. Yeah, he said. Yeah. Uh, you know, that reminds me of the Limestone County school tax mm-hmm. renewal, where it was mm-hmm. less than three percent, I believe. 
Um, and mm. so there's just massive, massive voter disengagement. And that should, I mean, that should really kind of, that it's a terrible state of affairs, but it should really be an inspiration to, uh, you know, the labor movement uh, such that it exists in the area that all you've got to do in a lot of these elections is turn out 4,000 people, you know? I mean, that's not, when you think about it like that, all I have to do is turn out 4,000 people. I mean, that's not actually that tall of a task. Um, so Yeah, I, I was going there exactly that it is it is a sad state of affairs, but it's also an opportunity. Um, it tells us that the vast majority of people are not really you know, consenting to this yeah. for one, you know, you could argue their lack of vote is a consent. And, and I guess perhaps it is. But, you know, the vast majority of people are not showing up to the polls to right. vote in these far right people. It's just not happening is the vast majority of people are not voting at all because, well, what do they have to vote for? I mean, there's right. not a lot of candidates, you know, to choose from. And so, you know, there again, the Alabama Democratic Party um continues to to be incapable of being a functional political party uh to be a functional second party a viable alternative um because they they seem unable to recruit candidates um i mean just starting there right yeah. that quantity before we even yeah. get into quality right. quantity they you know they're struggling to get names on the ballots and then you know, where they get names on the ballots, um, you know, there's questions there. So um, it's just a real shame because at the end of the day, working people in the state of Alabama do not have political representation. There ain't nobody in any real big numbers who are in office representing working class people. Right. There's a few decent, you know, elected officials throughout the state in various levels. I don't want to, you know, dismiss that. Um, there are people that I respect that are doing good work, but um, by and large, like the working class does not have political representation here. And I agree it is a massive opportunity. Um, and if labor <clears throat> were to get serious, you know, over the next four years, eight years, 12 years, what could we do? Right. A lot of potential. A lot of potential. All right. Uh, let's get to our second caller. Oh, sure. Um, Yep, got to be quick because we have at least two more things I want to get to before we uh, um, before we roll off. But this caller's uh, from a two six seven area code. I think I know who this is. Two six seven area code. What is your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, it's Evident Content uh, from hey, hey. Philly. Um, hey, appreciate you calling. First, I'm, I'm, I'm I appreciate you all. Uh, I'm. Still in a grief. I'm in a grieving process. My I lost my grandmother on uh, New Year's Day, so mm. I I'm I'm going through that, and then uh, I'm going through another thing where my, my business, my job is trying to uh, fuck me over on some bullshit, but which is and it's a. Uh, I can't uh, name the job, and I can't sure. name, um, but they're trying to hold the fuck out of me. Um, but with that said, I believe that uh, everyone needs unionization. 
every job needs to have a union um, and collective bargaining and collective um, protection. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, because it doesn't matter what type of work you do. We all want to be treated fairly, right? We all want it to be paid fairly. We want to have a safe environment. We want to have time for our families. We want to retire with dignity, it's right? It's about pay. It's more about rights. Right. Mm. And when it comes to rights, that means that you need to go ahead and um, have the right and uh, privilege to go ahead and uh, do your job and not have uh, not not have random um, allegations uh, levied against you without you having recourse. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a that's a situation too many workers experience right now, where you know one false accusation, one honest mistake one misunderstanding, one jerk supervisor, and they can lose their livelihood. Yeah, and and the thing is, I'm like, look, I, it's like, I don't have recourse. If I, it's like, so a random motherfucker can go ahead and um, say, I think that he did A, and my job's online, mm-hmm. but I can't say, oh, well, why can't I um why can't I call this motherfucker to the uh carpet to uh for them to prove their uh allegations. Right. And that's uh like uh, I'm like nuclear hot and I'm also like my my uh my management like my team, uh, they they know who I am, but I can't. Uh, their hands are tied in a way, and I have to uh, go ahead. And, I have to go ahead and either beat this uh, L or keep it moving, because even if I um, beat this allegation, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I work through all. Just like you know, I'm, I'm a foreign research technician, certified foreign research technician, and I had to deal with all the hell of COVID. And I have people coming in with some pointless bullshit, which I know that is not. Um, these are uh, not charges that I can. Um, Fight properly, right? And I got I got to fight uh, a pointless battle against um, a random allegation and charge, and have my um, name and my um, my reputation uh, put it uh, put up there, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, best of luck, man. Yeah, seriously. I I did want to do, have you all seen uh, the, I know you all are going to cut me off, but the, do you see what Keith Ellison is doing in Minnesota? 
I have, yeah. It's it's very um, uh, very exciting. Something that that we wouldn't see, unfortunately, the Alabama Attorney General doing. Uh, Keith Ellison is is very um, vigorously pursuing charges against a poultry plant, I believe, um, yeah, for dairy, child labor. Plant, I believe. I believe it's a dairy plant, but okay, you know, okay, yeah. But I, I just, uh, I just thought that I, like, I know. Look, you all, it's been like a couple weeks, so you all haven't uh, been on. But I thought that I would just bring that up to you all, and uh, and I know that um, you all have people that want to get on, and I just want to let you all know what I'm going through. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do brother, appreciate I've... you all giving me the time to uh, allow me to get on. I'm not gonna rant and rave about my issues. But so much. But I did want to uh, bring that one up because I think that that's very important and needs to be um, have eyes focused on. Yeah, appreciate it, yep. brother. Thanks. And uh, yeah, definitely wishing you all the best, man. Yeah, take yep. care of yourself. You too. Um, yeah, that was uh, cool about the Keith Ellison thing. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, three million dollar uh, wage theft lawsuit. Uh, it's not often that wage theft is pursued um, by an attorney general, so that is yeah. uh, very yeah. cool. One of the largest wage theft cases in his office's history um, against Evergreen Acres Dairy. Reading this from the Minnesota Reformer, there's more details there uh, saying that. The details of the complaint read like they were ripped from Upton Sinclair's The Jungle or George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London. So, Wow. Yeah. Check um, that out. Yeah. Yeah. Glad glad to hear that. Uh, could never imagine Attorney General Steve Marshall doing such a thing. No. No, definitely not. Uh, all right. So let's uh, get to this clip from uh, YouTube streamer Destiny. Uh, YouTube streamer Destiny is, talks about politics, and um, he had somebody from like Andrew Yang's thing, uh, party in California, call in and talk about ranked choice voting and, and other stuff. But they got on. Th there was a, a point in the conversation where this guy, for who's working with the Forward Party or whatever, starts talking about that. You know, in and of itself it would be a good to have a more diverse political class. Uh, more diverse meaning, uh, you know, coming from more walks of life, that it would be good if we had not only, you know, a bunch of lawyers, but um, we, if we had, you know, nurses and teachers and, you know, other sorts of professions who have lived other lives and, and understand those experiences, it would be good to have those types of people in the halls of Congress or in state houses, etc., <clears throat> rather than, vast majority being lawyers right our business owners or business owners are yeah. cops <clears throat> which cops, seems to be yeah. the three that's your three options in alabama <laughs> if you go down the alabama yeah. legislature and walk the halls you'll find business owners you'll find uh cops and you'll find the lawyers who work with both yeah so um so I I'm in agreement with that. I'm not a forward party guy, but uh, I think you know just uh, all, all else being equal, it common would be, sense. Yeah, like, it would be good to have more nurses in there. Um, uh, you know, uh, because like how how many people have to have the skill set of a lawyer? You know, like there's there's no doubt a certain value that a lawyer brings to the table. But okay, you've got a lawyer at the table. You don't have to fill the rest of the table with lawyers. You can 
think about other things that would be helpful to bring to the table. Okay, but anyway, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, spoil the clip. <laughs> so let's just play that because his, uh, his, um, he does not have the same opinion. So <laughs> what about nurses or like teachers or people who are like on the ground level, you know, we're working with our children, our communities and stuff. These people are not getting into office. I don't know if these people should, should govern. Do you think that a nurse at like has the prerequisite ability to govern effectively? Is this somebody that would be like an effective politician? How, why not? Because they don't have the necessary skill set to communicate with all the varying levels of government that they would need to or the necessary skill set. You know set what to nurses have to do on a daily basis? Like take one care of my patients friends in like, hospitals? Yeah, do you know how difficult that is? Like one of my friends is a labor and delivery nurse, right? And she's dealing all day with like stress, trauma, politics, bureaucracy, interpersonal communication. Why? Just because you're helping people. Yeah, but like, just because one thing is difficult like, doesn't mean that all difficult things are now achievable. That's like the Jordan Peterson Elon Musk idea. No, but like, like what do you think about what do you think about nursing doesn't doesn't translate to governance? Basically all of it? How? I I don't know if just, Like what do you what do you think what do you what do you, what do you think is important for a gov for a governor? For somebody who's going to be in governance an important thing for a governor my guess is that some of the most important skills are probably going to be able to balance the wants and needs of many different parties uh and then communicate those wants and needs okay do you think that a nurse has to balance the wants and needs between many different parties and then communicate that no and then additionally like what about teachers do you think teachers would you argue the same thing that teachers don't have the requisite skill set to, skill set to work in governance um, probably not much, no. I, I think that like being working like as a politician or working in governance is probably a relatively unique skill set. If anything, I would if, say actually now that I think about it, if anything, is a unique skill set. That, like, how do you get that skill set? Well, one is going to depend on your background. Lawyers actually probably are somewhat more equipped to deal with it. I guess naturally, I think maybe that's why so many lawyers go into politics. Um, exactly. That's that's my that's my argument. Right? Is that what happens? Is we end up we end up with a government and all of our legislators are lawyers and that's a really bad thing man like lawyers are people who charge $500 an hour to argue with each other and are widely regarded as some of like the most despised people in our society that suck blood and defend awful people how could we just have, wait hold on wait, wait 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 hold on how are lawyers some of the most despised people in society lawyers are probably some of the most important people in society and that they ensure like the smooth functioning of our rights to due process yeah so there you go uh lawyers most important people in society uh some of the most important people in society uh nurses don't make good legislators uh lawyers uniquely capable um and teachers also, uh, you know, yeah, uh, we just we have to be, you know, it's it's for our for our uh, it's for our own good that we are not able to govern ourselves. <laughs> Actually, is uh, that is his uh, his opinion, and and so you know, there was another clip that I told you about that I I, I don't I couldn't find it I couldn't remember wh when I heard this, but he also th there was another instance where he was talking about unions. And he got on, uh, he, he got on a tangent about that kind of disparaging unions, uh, or, or um, trying to make people think less of them than maybe they would be inclined to at this moment. Being, you know, so, uh, a lot of his audience being kind of like more liberal type people, and he said, you know, unions are not this, you know, uh, uh, you know, a more broadly useful thing. Unions are for their members, and the way that you can tell that is by ask a, a left wing 
pro-union guy if they like cops union cop unions and the answer is no and so therefore all unions are the same as cop unions was basically his argument um and, and unions are for their members and for nothing else and so you know they you shouldn't view them in a in a more romantic kind of way and when i was talking to you about that i you know it it really the juxtaposition of those two ideas is really valuable for me because actually um unions are obviously more socially valuable than just for their own members and one of the reasons is that to a certain extent being a legislator there is a different type of skill set there um but to the extent that it's true there's a different skill set and it's a skill set that needs honing ordinary working people are able to build those democratic muscles within unions in a way that we are not allowed to in non-union workplaces. And that in and of itself, if we're talking about societally, that is a huge benefit of unions. It, 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 they are, uh, uh, Jane McAlevey in, in one of her more recent books said that unions are schools of and participants in a democratic society in a democratic order in a way that like, Basically, no other organization is. Um, and, and so, you know, that just juxtaposition, I, I, felt, I felt like was, was kind of important uh, to, to pull on for a little bit. But just on its face, you know, Adam, you were a teacher. You were a teacher's union rep. Um, and you know a lot of nurses. Uh, both of us know nurses and both of us know teachers. What is your take on just on its face, you know, teachers don't have the skills need to be a legislator? I think it's elitist bullshit um, mm. because, you know, he, he he describes being able to balance multiple parties uh, and, and that kind of like what he describes. Yeah. Are the skill sets that teachers and nurses and, and so many other kind of workers demonstrate every single day at work all day? Um, there's been some research and, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but there's been research done about the number of decisions that a teacher has to make in a mm. given school day. It's wild. It's wild. It's why teachers are so tired at the end of the school day because they have been making so many decisions. Like, right. I mean, and you think about it, you got a room full of 25 kids and there's so many variables happening and you're dealing with everything coming in and out of the classroom and everything happening around you in the environment. While, at the same time, like your job right. is literally educating them according to the state standards, you know, that the government has determined is what you're supposed to teach. Um, and so you're doing all that. Uh, and same with nurses. I mean, uh, and, and so there's the elitist part of it. Well, and it's also b before you go off of that, the elitist part of it, th there's another part where he, he's taught. He says that, you know, he's describing the role of a legislator and it's like balancing the wants and needs of different constituencies and, and, you know, da, 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 da. And that's like a conception. That's like an idealized conception of a legislator that I do right. not it's really share. Incredibly like, naive, I think, like... well, it's in, it's, I, I think, it's it's naive, but it's also like not even what we should want as like it, because if 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 the goal is and this is not his goal, his he's not, you know, he, he he's not like a, a, a class. He's not even he wouldn't even be like a labor liberal. He's a, you know, definitely just a, a liberal type. Um, 
But my goal is not, you know, balance the wants and needs of different constituency. My goal is to build working class power <laughs> in society and to wrest control uh, from the people who have control and give it to the people whose lives are affected by that, right? So I don't, my legislator, I would not want to be somebody who just like, oh, balance the wants and needs of different constituencies and make deals and blah, blah, blah. The legislator that, that, that would be best for the working class is one that sees themselves as the representative of a working class who is tasked with getting as much as possible for their coalition of power and for giving more power to their coalition, right? That's not, you know, I mean- yeah, that's just a totally different conception of of a of a legislator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need representatives that are of, by, and for the working class because the working class is the majority. We are the majority, right? Like that is the majority constituency is working people, uh, and so absolutely we need more representation of working people in power uh, or in elected offices. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think it's elite elitism in the sense that, like, you don't want us to have representation and you also don't think they could be competent, that, like, we can right. be competent as workers. Uh, and right. it's like, how fucking competent are the people in Washington, D.C. and Montgomery right now? Right. Like, how great of a job are they doing? You know, and the thing is, is like that his own backstory is really uh, it it. it, it really contradicts kind of his stated ideals. And he does. Well, I don't know anything about the guy. Yeah. I well, mean, I, I, I will say that like, he does go on to say in this clip that, um, he does go on to say that, that, you know, like I'm, I'm not totally opposed to nurses, you know, being elected people. And he, he talks about, uh, one teacher or nurse that he, you know, endorsed and his community helped get elected, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he just said, you know, on balance, you know, lawyers better than, than nurses is, is kind of his view, but it's just so strange because he is like a college dropout. Um, he can't, he was a carpet cleaner before he became a professional video game player. And then, into a, and and now has has kind of parlayed that into a very uh, very lucrative uh uh career in politics streaming um and so you know he considers himself to like have broad knowledge on a lot of things and and all of it and, but he came from a working class background and I would think that you know his background would 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 make him more sympathetic to the idea that like it's better you know that that, that capacity to be a legislator and to be a leader uh, and to be a democratic actor is in the vast majority of working people. And it only needs to be cultivated to the extent that it is not pres that doesn't present itself. It needs to be cultivated. Um, and, and but but, you know, on its face, it's better to have more diverse backgrounds in, uh, uh, you know, in, in the, 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 the rooms where decisions are being made. And so, uh, yeah, it was just a really bizarre take that absolutely, uh, you know, is, is completely contradictory to, um, you know, everything that, that, you know, our program is about as, as union members and as a union radio program, you know, our whole, whole thing is that, uh, you know, working power, uh, working people not only, you know, deserve to have more power in society and, and uh, you know, and particularly in the workplace, but also society at large, but but we uh, are capable wielders of power when we are able to get it. Um, so, 
I thought I felt like that was a good uh, good jumping off point for discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I I just I, I feel insulted by it. Um, I I do run into other working people though who have that kind of conception that like politics yeah. is for you know smart elite people over there and right. like that's who needs to handle the politics and it's like no uh, that's uh that's not helping you um you know it's just not helping you deferring to these so-called elites uh whether you know they may not conceptualize it that way that like they're deferring to to people who they're considering elites but that's effectively what they're doing uh, and it's not helpful we need more working class people who are running for offices uh, and, you know, hopefully winning offices. Um, You know, there are limits to what we can accomplish through electoral politics, but it's just, it's damn sure better to have regular working people in those rooms, in those offices, uh, than more, you know, just more of the same, the lawyers and the business owners and the cops. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and and also the thing about, his thing about the unions was completely absurd. you know, like the cop unions and all that. Uh, yeah, it, it just made no sense and, and reveals to me he doesn't know an awful lot about the labor movement. Right. No. Yeah, no, it, it would definitely, you know, uh, and, and he is, a, uh, you know, he's a streamer. He streams like, I don't know, like 10 hours a day. So it's there's not a there, there's a non-zero chance that he sees this. And so, you know, I would encourage you to like, you know, Read some about the history of the labor movement, uh, about the the Flint strike with the UAW and the worker leaders there. Uh, the Many and the Few is a good is a good book there. Um, all of Jane McAlevey's book. I mean, the best one that, that's kind of uh, talks about the uh, value of unions in society more broadly uh, is Jane McAlevey's book, A Collective Bargain. Um, you know, but there's there's so many, so, you know. The labor movement is such an important institution in American society, and it's uh, it has a much broader effect uh, than its own members. And uh, at its uh, you know at its best, it's it is at the forefront of that, and it is making use of that and and doing more for society uh, writ large. You know, obviously, and nor there are stains is the- in the history of the labor movement, but uh, but there's you know the UAW funded the civil rights movement, right? Uh, you know, and that was clearly not something that. Uh, you know, in a you, you would conceptualize as like narrowly self-interested. You know, there was a there was a societal goal there uh, that the UAW uh, had when it came to power. Right. Yeah. I mean, not that they were the only funders or anything of that nature, but th- no, that they right. were they were involved and they very much were. And and labor always has been involved in these human rights struggles. Uh, but also, like, just to to push back on one more thing there. Like the idea that, oh, well, unions are just for their members. Okay. Like unions represent workers. Isn't it good that workers have someone for them? Right. Like I, it's not a bad thing in and of itself for a union to be for its members. That's literally mm-hmm. why it does exist. And so there is some element of truth there. Um, but yeah, any any just cursory knowledge of history reveals that um, – Labor absolutely extends outside of just narrow, you know, shop floor interest of right. their particular members. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that either. That is, in fact, a good thing that that right. workers 
do have representation. Yeah, it speaks to the value of the labor movement that, like, from, you know, uh, on the spectrum, you've got, like, okay, some of the, some of the, some of the worst examples of unionism is, you know, bread and butter, I'm making my members' lives better, right? You know, <laughs> it's like, it's not a bad thing. Two, you know, the really aspirational, you know, um, you know, society changing, uh, uh, progressive leadership from, you know, the foundation of the UAW and, and, uh, uh other unions. So, yeah. Um, got this other clip, uh, got this final clip that I have, uh, but did you want to instead talk about the MLK conference? Yeah, this, this do that, um, since it is happening this weekend and I got a chance to stop by yesterday, uh, in Montgomery. Uh, so the 2024 AFL-CIO MLK Civil and Human Rights Conference, bringing together union members, organizers, activists, and leaders in historic Montgomery, Alabama to address civil rights and social justice challenges facing working people. Um, it is taking place January 12th through 14th. Um, so opened up yesterday uh the theme of the 2024 conference is Our Voice, Our Ballot, Our Future, honoring Dr. King's vision for collective action at the voting booth, in the community, and in the workplace to safeguard the pillars of our democracy. Each day of the conference will explore different aspects of the theme with deep dives into community engagement, civic engagement, political strategy, and the evolving landscape of workplaces and democracy. Um, so the... Yesterday was um, opening remarks, of course, uh, from AFL-CIO President Elizabeth Schuler and the Secretary-Treasurer Fred Redman. Um, there were a couple panels as well that I got a chance to attend, um, and also remarks from the Acting Secretary of Labor, Julie Sue, uh, which was interesting. Uh, Today, I see where former Senator, Alabama Senator Doug Jones will be there in attendance. Um, there's going to be, uh, you know, workshops and things of that nature happening. Uh, State Representative Laura Hall, I believe, is on a panel. Um, and so that's a little bit about the conference. Uh, like I said, I did stop in yesterday. Um let me start, I guess, with the positives. I'm really, really appreciative that something like this is happening in Alabama. Uh, I'm appreciative of Isabel and uh, Danielle at the AFL-CIO for allowing me to attend uh, on a media pass yesterday. Appreciate that. Uh, so very thankful uh, that I got a chance to pop in. Um, it was well attended. They, they said uh, 800 strong, um, so, you know, they were having to bring in a lot more chairs uh, to to the main room, so uh seemed like, you know, maybe it exceeded expectations. Uh, so those are all positives, uh, you know, pretty good vibes, I would say. A um, little bit, the state Alabama AFL-CIO convention was pretty low energy, I, I would say, uh, you know, compared to this conference. Um, diversity wise, it was, um, definitely, a, a a lot of black members were there. It is, you know, the MLK conference at, in Montgomery and a lot of unions, um, sent a lot of their black leaders to attend, frankly. Um, and so, uh, but there was a pretty good diversity, a, a good mix of white, black, Hispanic, 
Um, there was not a ton of folks under 40. Uh, probably not a surprise to folks, but yeah, not, not a lot of young people. Uh, though I could tell from some of the programming that they were trying to intentionally like bring young people into the conversation, and I do appreciate that. Um, so kind of transitioning to some other thoughts about it. Um, it seemed like with Schuler and with Redman and with Secretary of Labor Julie Sue, they would say about 90% of the right thing. Uh, and then get into just um, real partisan Biden, Joe Biden puffery. Um, just really, really pumping up Joe Biden. Um, I heard multiple times that the Biden-Harris administration is the most pro-union administration uh, of our lifetimes, of history, I even heard. Surely not um, history. Um, let's see, uh, Union Joe, he was called by the Secretary of Labor. And like that, I understand, right? She is the Secretary of Labor. She works in the administration. Of course, right. she's going to promote her, her boss, the president, um, who's running for re-election. But uh, you could have easily assumed that Elizabeth Schuler and Fred Redman are also part of the Biden campaign. Um, and I'm just going to say, frankly, that as a labor activist... That alienated me uh, because when you tell me you don't want to cut any more excuses to politicians, you can't 60 seconds later then tell me how freaking great Joe Biden is hmm. because as a labor activist, I'm trying to look at it with clear eyes that there are certain positives to the Biden administration that we've seen for labor, but there's also a lot of negatives, okay? Uh, we can look at any number of them from the coal miners in Alabama who got no help mm -hmm. from Washington, D.C., to the rail workers whose right to strike was interfered with by this president, to the genocide happening overseas with our tax dollars. So there are a lot of room, a lot of, there's a lot of room for critiques of the Biden administration. In my opinion, from the left, and obviously we have a lot of union members who are conservative, who are right wing, who are opposing Joe Biden for other reasons. Um, but that did bother me because it just, I don't know, I, I just don't have a lot of good vibes about that approach. Of, uh, you know, I appreciate that UAW has at least held out in their endorsement thus far. And is kind of making Biden work for it a little bit. AFL-CIO did not make Biden work for it mm -mm. at all. And um, it just rings a little hollow when you're sharing the words of Dr. King and you're talking about shame on us if we're leaving people behind. And then transition that into pumping up this moderate conservative imperialist president who yeah has appointed a good person at the national labor relations board and also isn't really lifting a finger to help that board um so it just really yeah that rubbed me the wrong way i can't be the only one who attended 
who felt the same way. Uh, there were plenty of cheers and applauses to the Biden lines. Uh, so, you know, obviously, I can't say that everyone felt like me. Uh, in fact, I was probably in the minority, given that it was a pretty establishment-friendly room, you know, lots of leaders and big wigs, so to speak. Um, so that would be the other thing I would say is you need more rank-and-file members and you need more young members at these kind of events. Uh, I heard about it word of mouth. Like, AFL-CIO did not send me something in my mailbox. They did not email me. I am a labor activist. I am political coordinator for IATSE Local 900. I am trustee for the North Alabama Area Labor Council. Um, I have involvement in other campaigns as well and uh, co-host the Valley Labor Report, the only union talk radio show in the state of Alabama. Uh, yeah, why did I hear about it word of mouth? So I do wonder, you know, what kind of efforts are, are there in intentionally uh, engaging rank-and-file workers <clears throat> and getting young workers to engage in this sort of conference? Because, you know, my criticism aside, I really enjoyed my time. Uh, it seemed like a really good conference. It seemed like a really good opportunity for uh, labor community coalition building. Um, so there was a lot of positives in that respect. I did appreciate uh, Secretary Treasurer Fred Redmond's words about the Alabama forced labor, forced prison labor lawsuit. Um, but as uh, Jacob pointed out, couldn't help but notice the irony in that Mayor Stephen Reed of Montgomery spoke at the conference mm. and the city of montgomery is literally one of the employers accused in this lawsuit of using the convict lease labor that's him like he's 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 the like, mayor he's the guy yeah. like that's his government that's insane um, when you sent me that i was so i i did have to step in and out a little bit um so I didn't hear Mayor Reed's comments. I'm not sure if anyone kind of like pressed on that or if there was any, you know, discussion of that, like putting it in context. I don't know. I, I, I missed. So, uh, but yeah, those were some of my observations. So again, I'm very thankful for this happening in Alabama. I hope that the AFL-CIO will come back to Alabama and not forget about Alabama. I appreciated some of the programming. Um, it was a lot of, you know, positive rah-rah, which is good, but also remember we've been losing for 50 years. Mm. We've had a couple good years where things seem like they're turning around, even though numbers wise, we haven't made that big of a dent, not yet. Uh, so I think there, I would have appreciated more like leveling with me about the realities of where we're at and like what we have left to do. Um, I probably could have used a little bit more of that and a little bit less of the focus on the November election and voting for Joe Biden. Um, particularly when you're talking to me an Alabamian whose vote will not matter. Right. My vote will not matter in November because Alabama will go to the Republican by 20 to 30 points by any reasonable assessment, right? And we have an electoral college, which means it, it, it won't actually matter, right? So here you are using valuable time, gathering movement leaders together, and we're talking about something that doesn't even 
apply to like half the room. Right. So yeah, those were my thoughts. Um, I would definitely go again. Uh, and if nothing else, I got a chance to meet a lot of cool people. And, you know, hell, that's half the reason to go to these kind of conferences is just to network and to meet cool people and hear what people are working on and hear new things. And so it was great to hear uh, Tennessee for All and some of the really cool things they're doing um, not too far away from us. Uh, heard a little bit about the Bluebird campaign in Georgia. Um, you know, uh, there was a good panel on LGBTQ workers and um how we advocate for and and represent LGBTQ workers in in our unions, um, and I think that was an important conversation to have in in that space and with that audience. Um, so yeah, there was a lot I liked, but the Biden stuff rubbed me the wrong way, um, and you know, yeah, otherwise gave me kind of a bad taste about a, an otherwise good experience. Um, but you know, that's my opinion um obviously there are a lot of union members who have bought into the biden uh campaign and you know more power to you uh but i particularly have a lot of critique and i think we as a labor movement have to have much higher standards it's one thing to say somebody's better than the alternative right but it's another thing to go on and on and on gushing with compliments uh and you know comparisons to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, just don't think that's been earned. Right. Sorry, I, I don't think the record <clears throat> reflects that. And I think an honest assessment of the record tells you that there are some good things, but there are some bad things, and we have some room for improvement. So um, that's, that's my thoughts and reflections on the MLK conference. Um, and I do think it's, you know, important that labor... Um, engage with the legacy of Dr. King uh, because Dr. King was absolutely a champion of labor. And so, you know, I do think that's important. And it's important that that history be out there um, because labor rights and civil rights have always been intertwined. Um, and those movements, both are needed uh, and have to be working together to be successful. Right. Yeah, uh, I, I was particularly shocked when you sent me that uh, picture of Stephen Reed uh, at the podium. Uh, that was that was uh, uh, you know I I think particularly galling. Um, shouldn't have been allowed on the podium in my view. Uh, should have been booed. Uh, but probably most of the you know m most of the most of the attendants probably d do not know about his implication in the uh, labor trafficking case um that the afl has signed on to the suit for but uh no excuse for the people who booked him yeah uh and you know again if there are conversations that have taken place where uh you know mayor reed has denounced these practices um i'm i'm happy to all ears yeah yeah happy to take that in and, and receive it for what it's worth uh but as far as i know that hadn't happened and so yeah it did strike me as a little tone deaf yeah all right. Well, uh, you got anything else? Yeah. I just just to kind of close, uh, since this is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, um, I wanted to share a little bit of a statement that my union, IATSE, put out. Um, 
As members of the IATSE, we pay homage to the lasting impact of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., recognizing his vital role in the civil rights movement and his support for unionized labor. Dr. King understood that the labor movement's importance was not only fair wages and better working conditions, but that it was the one true path towards social and economic freedom for all workers. King's vision remains a guiding light, urging all, us all to continuously stand up for dignity and solidarity in our pursuit of a just and equitable workplace. Uh, and they shared this quote from Dr. King at the AFL-CIO convention in October of 1965, where he said, The labor movement was the principal force that transformed misery and despair into hope and progress. Out of its bold struggles, economic and social reform gave birth to unemployment insurance, old age pensions, government relief for the destitute, and above all, new wage levels that meant not mere survival, but a tolerable life. The captains of industry did not lead this transformation. They resisted it until they were overcome. When in the 30s, the wave of union organization crested over our nation, it carried to secure shores not only itself, but the whole society. So wanted to close with that uh, and want to just encourage everyone to have a good weekend. Uh, if you get a chance, listen to some Dr. King. Uh, it's always instructive and uh, inspirational in my view. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll see you next week then. We got some good guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, we really do. It's going to be yep. exciting. Uh, and so, uh, and don't forget about those plugs. Go to labornotes.org slash events. Uh, and I've got some local events here in the Huntsville area happening as well. So uh, thanks, y'all. Solidarity. See you next week.